much of a fuss about me. You know, usually I'm a little bit more shy, you know what I mean? <laughs> but as for tonight, you know what about those locals? I can stand in this ring and say, Orale, I am the WWE Champion! Or should I say, we are the WWE Champion. That's right, Holmes, Viva La Raza! Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Bushby and Thompson's Wrestling Adventure. I'm Martin Bushby and over the other side of the pond from me is none other than the man himself, Andrew Thompson. Andrew, how are you this month? Mr. Bushby, always a pleasure. Glad to be back. It's, all, it's always good hearing your voice, my brother, always. No, great, great to be chatting to you again, mate. And we've got, a, we've got another special guest lined up this month, haven't we? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We have a, a, a very, very special guest uh, joining us this month. This man is a member of the Post Wrestling Network, Post Wrestling family. Uh, he's always showing love and always showing support to everybody within the Post Wrestling Network. He is one of Ireland's favorite sons. He is not your guy. He's not their guy. He is our guy, Martin, our man, the man. Neil Flanagan. What's going on, Neil? <laughs> what an intro, Andrew. I don't know how to respond to that. Thanks very much, both of you, for having me on the show. I'm really uh, honoured to be on. And uh, can't wait to get talking about this show. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for coming on, Neil. I'm, I'm on Neil, as Andrew, Andrew pointed out there. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. And um, I just wanted to get into some talk before uh, before we get into the main chunk of the show, where a bit of this talk might go over Andrew's head, but I can't help but noticing early you're riding high on top of the Grapple Fantasy Football League. I mean, uh, <laughs> right down at the bottom, uh, how, how you assemble a winning team? Well, I would say that you know having a good knowledge of, of football and having a good knowledge of fantasy football are two completely different things. <laughs> Martin, I, I was pushed into playing a, a FPL, as we call it, Fantasy Premier League, back in 2008 by some colleagues and work. And, you know, I, I do support Man United. I am a football fan, but um, the, the, the kind of experience and uh, knowledge you build up from playing this game is completely different from I know uh, from knowing everything about football. I mean, I know I've got lots of friends with encyclopedic knowledge of 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 football uh, who are terrible at it. So it's kind of a game you just have to play. Uh, I think if for a few years almost, or well, at least one to really get your legs under you because um, it's a complicated set of rules. Yeah, I haven't done it since I was a teenager. I used to fill it out in a paper and that, and I did it this this year, first time in ages, and I've not really been following the Premier League. And I burned through all my uh, chips, like, in the first three months, like an idiot, and I was <laughs> myself uh, rock bottom of the league. But, Andrew, is, uh, fantasy fantasy sports are huge in the States, aren't they? Is it mm. something that you uh, try and do every year? 
I tried I tried to dabble in uh fantasy basketball like in twenty 2014 2015 i think I, I was trash at it like I, I i i had no clue what i was doing bro like no clue and then and then you know the automatic the automatic thing that most would do that's do the fantasy in any type of sport you just go for the people that you see like that, that you think uh will be at the top of the league the respective league but mm-hmm. there, there were so many different people that had standout performances uh on a week-to-week basis on a, or a night-to-night basis that like you you see people having certain players and then those players would go for 30 on a night and then the, the top player that you pick wouldn't really do much or they would have off nights and i i was just trash at it so i i gave up my fantasy hopes years ago the one that always like blows my mind, and I don't know how people keep up with it, is one for American football. Because there's so many players, so many players getting injured, so many players that will get you a certain yeah. amount of points. Yeah. And that one just looks like a complete minefield. I'd say especially now because, you know, being a pandemic, and you you know, you know just never know, with the, especially with the NFL, mm. like you just never know what players could could contract the virus and then they'll be out for two weeks and, you know, that throws your whole thing off. Like, yeah, I, I think football is like one of the toughest ones. American football is one of the toughest ones for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I was actually uh, listening to uh, your and Nate's great review of Central Intelligence the other day on the Rock and My Via Pitch show. Uh, I mean, you, didn't you reveal you used to work at uh, Six Flags? Is that a theme park? See, look, man, see, you, you see what I'm saying? To you? Look, for, for the most part, I tried to keep I tried to keep the private life private, but I had to share that information <laughs> with, with Brother Nick because it was within the, uh, the confines of the conversation. But now, man, uh, in all seriousness, like, yeah, I did work at uh, Six Flags the summer of 2016. That was legit. One of the, I, I think I was, what, what was that? I'm, I'm going to say I was 19 or 20. Dude, that was like legit one of the best summers of my life. Might be the best summer of my life because I, I met seven of my closest friends that I'm still close with to this day. And we all still communicate in a group chat. Like we all still very tight to this day. Like I met mm-hmm. legit my closest friends there. And I, that, that whole summer was filled with memories that I legit would never forget. Like that was amazing. So like, I always look back at that time. And that was like, even whenever I hear six flags, like somebody talking about, it, I always smile because I just think about that period of time. That was like, it, it seems like tw- summer 2016 was everybody's favorite year. Yeah, <laughs> for a yeah, period so, of time. Yeah, it's certainly interesting the sort of jobs you have growing up and sort of like the people right. you meet and how they, uh, how oh. they interact with you. Yeah, I'm about to say to answer your question though, we did uh used to get on the rise when we were on break. Like we like even with the people who were in the park. Like if I was um if I was on break, I would go to a ride and I would get to go to the front of the ride. But I had my shirt on, my work shirt. Yeah. So in case you in case you catch somebody trying to side eye, you had to be like, I work here and I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and then we used to um. We used to ride on, uh, ride out when the park closed. Like we all get together, go to one ride, and then you know we'll go to one roller coaster and you know ride that like four or five times before uh before the park fully shut down. And uh yeah, uh one time I had to climb up to the top of a roller coaster. Never nice. again. Yeah, shit was crazy. Never again. It was it was at night too. The uh, the cart got stuck at the top of the lift, like literally right at the top of the lift, and we had to go up there and um comfort the people. Some people, you know, some people get like real nervous. Oh yeah, I would. And stuff happen. Yeah, so I had to go up there, and they did maybe put on a little safety vest and stuff like that. And uh, it was one lady; she got mad at me because um, I, I guess she said I didn't bring her some some water or something like that. But the water was like in a, it, it, it was it was it was like in this weird tube that I know people probably been dipping their hands in and out of, and I didn't think that was sanitary. Mm-hmm. But she thought I was just trying to BS her, or I was trying to be lazy. And yeah, she kind of she 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 made a little subtle threat that she was going to fire me, but it didn't work. So. 
Wow, that's wild. No, I, I'm she definitely... says she's going to give me fire. There we go. She should have. <laughs> she should have been thanking you for being a daredevil, climbing up, the, bro, <laughs> climbing I, up the top of the ride. You knew I was scared for my life, bro. But I, I, put, I put on a tough face. I'm definitely one of them people who gets on a roller coaster, and then you know that bit where you're like upside down and it's going up really slowly. I'm like, I'm always thinking, oh, what would I do if this just stopped right now? And right. <laughs> I'm always like, one of them idiots. As much as I love thrill rides and roller coasters, I'm always one of them idiots who's constantly thinking about, you know, what can go wrong with this ride. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think that's kind of all of us. Like, we're just in life in general. Sometimes you'd be like, no, no, watch this be the day, like the worst thing in the world yeah. happened to me. Like, I, I'm, I'm exactly one of those people. <laughs> Um, so anyway, shall we uh, get onto the subject we're here to talk today? We're going to be talking about the uh, WWE-produced Eddie Guerrero documentary, Cheating, Death, Stealing Life, that was uh, released in 2004. Uh, we're going to be talking through the documentary portion, and uh, we'll be chatting a few of the matches from the same DVD later on. Um, I mean, before we get into the documentary, um, Eddie Guerrero, what are the first thoughts that, that come to come to mind, uh, Neil, when you, when you first think of Eddie Guerrero? Well, I mean, here, my first exposure to wrestling, I suppose, was on Sky with uh, WWF and then WWE. So I I wasn't at the time that Eddie crossed my radar very uh, knowledgeable or knowledgeable at all, really, about his time in Japan or his time in uh, AAA. Um, So the the kind of... uh, when he crossed from WCW, that's when I, as a kid at least, uh, or a younger person, uh, got into him. You know, that was the Latino Heat character, which I suppose is slightly, slightly dodgy, slightly problematic if you look at it these days. But um, that was my first exposure to him. And then, of course, you know, as I as I got more and more into wrestling, um, went back and uh, saw some of his, um, watched a lot of his career prior to that. Yeah, I suppose um, that must have been around the same time you first started watching Eddie Guerrero, sort of like um, his early WWF run, Andrew. Yeah, that was like exactly uh, Neil's timeline was like kind of my timeline as well. Uh, my first exposure to Eddie was, of course, the Latino he when he was um, with China and mm-hmm. doing that whole thing with her, which was hilarious. And um, yeah, of course, like as you like, like get older, you start to go back and stuff like that and look at his stuff prior to WWE. And uh, yeah, so so Eddie was like always one of those like favorite. Uh, childhood uh, TV character slash wrestlers for me, like he was just like especially the whole you know, um, cheating cheat on the matches and trying to act like he was the one getting hurt, like that, that stuff was just like super entertaining to me. Yeah, for me it was. Um, I remember seeing a few pictures of him in Power Slam, uh, Miss Triple A stuff, and I remember um, I think they had a, an obituary for Art Bar and uh, had a few pictures of mm. Eddie Guerrero in it, but it was definitely the cruiserweights in um, in WCW, and maybe even um, I, I sort of kind of remember his match with uh, Dean Malenko from ECW, but because um, mm-hmm. obviously over in the UK you had to get it through tape traders and stuff, and I always remember when Worlds Collide was like a big thing among tape traders that you know that was one of the main shows you had to get when you were first starting to get these tapes, and then certainly obviously his WWF stuff um, you know lives long in the memory, but. Um, like I noted at the start, you know, this was released in 2004, and I do remember getting this DVD at the time. And um, and for the time, guys, I think it was quite surprising how open and honest they were in it about Eddie's battles with addiction and his overdoses and stuff. Because usually around this time, obviously, they cover that quite in depth in WWE documentaries now. But um, around the time, 2000, before 2004, they just gloss over it. And, um, you know, but in this documentary, they do really highlight um, Eddie's struggles, don't they, uh, Neil? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that surprised me too because 
I had seen clips of this of this documentary online on I think Daily Motion and you know other places where you can find it, but I hadn't seen the full the full documentary. And uh, you're right. I mean, he's it goes he goes as far into the detail of what exactly he's taking. You know, there's uh, you're going to get to this, I'm sure, Martin. But you know, he talks about using GHB to get to sleep, which I believe is roofies, you know, it's serious stuff, you know, and that was before the car accident. So, yeah, he's super open about about it all. There's no glossing over it and just using the word demons to try and cover, you know, uh, detailed addiction issues. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Usually they would say like, oh, they were dealing with demons and then cut to light, you know, when they were, you know, past that. But yeah, it's interesting that they do go so in depth on it. Um, I do. I, I, it was funny because because um, this isn't. We discovered uh, watching this that um, it's not actually available on the WWE Network, and um, I'd long forgotten that I'd still got the DVD. So I ended up ordering one off Amazon for like four pounds, and then I was looking through, and I was like, "Oh, actually, I've got two copies of this." The back of my back of the collection. But interesting that it's not on the WWE Network. I think Andrew. Yeah, you, you would definitely think this would be um, something on the WWE Network. I, I think they have something. Along the lines, like a DVD, I know they did like a, I think an Untold or something like that yeah. about Eddie or yeah. something along those lines. But yeah, man, you, you would think this documentary would be up there. Uh, it, it was a solid one, man. They opened up about a lot, like, and, and it was, it, it was kind of interesting to, you know, hear from like knowing this was all this stuff was recorded, like especially the interviews was taped when Eddie was still here, and it was like just interesting to hear his perspective about how his life and the ups and downs and stuff like that. But yeah, it is surprising that this wasn't, uh, this isn't on the network. Yeah. Cause it opens up. It's, uh, Eddie driving around in a car talking about his childhood, uh, talk, talking about how he got his name from his mother and, and talking about his, uh, his wrestling father, Gory Guerrero was a big time wrestler in, in Mexico. And, um, there's a lot of talking heads in this. Obviously, they've got his mother, his uncle, his brothers, his sisters, uh, Chavo, and then interestingly enough, Vicky Guerrero. Because obviously now we're used to seeing her on, uh, you know, AEW and previous to that on WWF. But um, this must have been one of the first few times she was um, appearing, sort of like as a public personality. So I found that found that really interesting. Then he... yeah, I, I was going to ask you, Martin, Martin and Neil, did y'all um, did y'all get a chance to see the um, the previews or the ads um, slash commercials that that came on right before the um right before the DVD started. Did y'all get a chance to see uh, any of those? Oh yeah, it was uh, for the Benoit DVD. Wasn't yeah, it? and then uh, it, was it um, Judgment Day against JBL? Was that the other one? Yeah, they had the Judgment Day 2004. They were promoting. Um, it was the the documentary about Benoit, and then the, uh one one of my favorite ones that brought back a lot of old memories. I'm sure uh, I'm sure that y'all y'all remember this. The um the the old uh, it was a Day of Reckoning from on Nintendo GameCube. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that that was like one of my favorite games. I, I think I still had the old um, WrestleMania 19 GameCube video game. Like and that, that thing brought back so many memories. The graphics were so bad back then, but that was like stimulating my mind. What was that? What I mean, I was completely a PlayStation person, so I just was like, you know, no URL and Raw V SmackDown yeah. and things like mm-hmm. that. Well, I always remember that these Nintendo GameCube games always seem to have sort of like a different storyline for each of them. What yeah, was the Day of Reckoning. <laughs> I, I think they so I, I don't well, I don't exactly remember the one for Day of Reckoning, but I know it was like the same like graphics and like basically the same um the, the same type of thing as a uh, WrestleMania 19 video game and the, and the one with that was I think it was Stephanie McMahon 
was trying to take over WWE from her father or something like that. And you had to like you, you had to like help Vince stop her. Like it, it was crazy, bro. It was always funny with these games. They always involved something to do with the McMahons and you were trying to like silly. Were you much of a, a gamer around this time, Neil? Not really, I have to say. No, I did have a PS3, but um I'm I've never been a hardcore a hardcore gamer. I ended up using it most, mostly to to play Blu-rays. It became a Blu-ray player rather than anything else for me. Yeah, I remember it was um, that was one of the cheapest Blu-ray plays you could get, weren't it, when mm-hmm. Blu-rays first came out. But um so it's back to the documentary and then um Eddie's talking a bit about his siblings and what's funny for me as a TNA fan, uh see Hector Guerrero turn up here who was uh, obviously a wrestler in his own right and he had a quite an extensive time in, in TNA aligned with uh, LAX. I don't know if you recall that, Andrew. Uh hold on. You, Ed, hold on. Say that again. Hector Guerrero, he was in TNA for like a number of years and he was aligned with LAX and they used to have him on a lot of the pay-per-views and shows. I don't know if you remember that. The- I, say, I, I feel like that is something that's like burned in the back of my mind. Like, now burned, like it's something like sitting in the back of my mind, but like I cannot like recall any anything about that. That's interesting. Yeah. And uh, then he, he shows us clips of his uh, old house and his neighborhood. He talks about being born in El Paso, Texas, obviously a large Hispanic community down there in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and being born and born and raised, and um, Eddie, Eddie's mum used to call him Macho Man, not, not related to the wrestler, I don't think. And Eddie was always asking her for hugs and things like that. And then um, mm. talks about his love for tacos, and this clutch of him meeting fans and signing their autographs at some sort of like famous taco joint. Um, but um, we get into the wrestling part. I mean, um, he's quoted in the early stages saying, you know, he, he was all about wrestling, dedicated to wrestling, um, and you know, he was playing other sports. But he decided to, uh, you know, quit baseball, quit American football, quit basketball, just to concentrate on on wrestling. What's funny here, we see shots of the wrestling ring they had in the backyard, and Eddie seemed to spend every every day out there. It seems Neil. They had some fantastic childhood footage. You know, at first I Man, thought this yes. is. This, at first, I thought this is so good. They've actually mocked this up, you know. And then, but then it becomes very clear. No, no, that is a young Eddie Guerrero. And um, so, I don't know whether they were using a cine camera or, you know, what was available when he was he was born in I think the late sixties. So, in the early seventies, this would have been, I guess, you know, when he was a kid. And um, it's it's amazing the footage that they've got, and it, it looked terrific on this documentary. It, I think what comes across is what a um, what a really loving family he's he's yeah. he's part of, and how much they think of him, and how much he thought of all of his his brothers and sisters and his mum. Um, yeah. He really lights up when he's talking about his childhood. He says he was such a happy kid. Mm-hmm. Like like the piggyback of what Neil just said, like it it, it was kind of like really crazy in a good way to see the footage that they had of Eddie as a kid and the the throwback footage they had of his mom and his his pops and. Like just the old pictures they had, like that stuff is so cool. Like just to see, like it, like that thing kind of really makes you, um, like realize that you should try to capture, uh, most of the moments with your loved ones as much as you possibly can. Like, cause you know, like we, we know we all, you know, like we, you know, you, you just never know, like what life could take you or what could happen. So I think that, like that, like seeing that, it just kind of even put into perspective to me to like always try to take those photos or record that funny video or that individual in your family. Cause you, you know what I'm saying? You just never know. And you, you will probably want those one day later down the line. So that was like really cool to see. Yeah. It's a really good... a good job of building up sort of like this wrestling legacy that he was from, you know, his whole family mm. seemed to be all about wrestling, didn't they? Mm. And I say one of the, uh, one of the cooler 
one of the cooler moments uh, early in the documentary was when uh, was Eddie was riding through the city. And he, I think he drove past the school bus. And then, like, the people on the school bus, like, immediately recognized him. They were like, Eddie, Eddie. <laughs> I, I, I know he, he played it cool. But I know he felt like the man in that moment. I know he had to. Yeah. Yeah, because they show clips of um, the El Paso Coliseum where he's there wrestled for, like, 12 years, I think they said, every Monday night. And then Eddie talks about growing up in the locker room similar to the other sort of second or third generation wrestlers. And we see Chavo say the same thing. And then... Um, well, it's funny, Eddie, Eddie and Chavo both say they joined intermissions when they were kids. They'd go into the ring and wrestle around. And people, people, rather than go and buy snacks, they'd be more interested in watching these kids wrestle in the ring, which I thought was quite funny. And then, and then we have a story about Eddie as a kid going up to uh, the really famous wrestler Bobo Brazil and asking, and asking <laughs> if one of the uh, midget wrestlers was his kid and he really wanted to wrestle one of the other kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you, you could just tell... Eddie was a very charismatic individual as a child, like just from how his family describes him. Like you you kind of see like early on that wrestling was kind of something that was kind of like it was just something that it was going to be impossible for him to not get into at some point. Like just having that personality that young and to be as like just enthusiastic as he was about professional wrestling. You kind of you kind of make it out early like for somebody who. If it's somebody who watching this like doesn't even follow professional wrestling that often, you mm-hmm. can kind of just tell early that you know he he was more than likely meant meant to be in the business. Yeah, it's really fascinating to see, um, you know, the when you when you get into the stories of some of the sort of wrestling um, families like the Hearts and the Guerreros and and uh, how alien that is to the rest of us. You know, to be growing up with, with a uh, you know a wrestling ring in in the backyard. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, everything, all of your leisure time revolves around that, putting it up, taking it down as a punishment, you know, these sorts of mm-hmm. things. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I suppose unless you've got sort of like, you know, out there parents like the young books, you know, not many kids are going to have a wrestling ring in the backyard, aren't they? So mm-hmm. it is really interesting and good point there, Neil, that, you know, it is like a whole of a world compared to sort of a quote unquote normal childhood. But um well, it's interesting. Obviously, you know, this documentary is only 45 minutes long and um, still a good documentary, but the way they seem to really skim over some things. And when I was doing mm. some research for this, um, what's not included in this portion of the documentary, that actually Eddie actually had a wrestling scholarship to a to a university in Texas, but dropped out and then obviously started mm. training professionally later. Uh, crazy to think Eddie is a sort of amateur wrestler, maybe going to the Olympics. Mm. I mean, it could have turned out completely different uh, going down that route, I think, Neil. Yeah, um, I wonder how good he was. I know that uh, the the crossover from from amateur wrestling to to pro wrestling is is um, not always a smooth one. You know, Angle is is always the the example of the the guy who just got it, as they said. You know, but uh, yeah, I did, I wasn't aware of that that he got a college scholarship. But I suppose yeah. he, um, with his family line, there was only one way he was going to go. I say, uh, Eddie, he tried to put that to use. I'm pretty sure y'all heard the story when he tried to he tried to go at Kurt Angle that one night. I don't know if y'all heard that. <laughs> he, he tried to use that old background on Kurt. I don't, I don't think Kurt was too uh, was too fond of that though, just from the the, the story that he told about it. Yeah, because apparently those two had like um, quite the rivalry backstage, didn't they? Not you know, sort of like a friendly rivalry, right? Competitive, trying one, yeah, yeah. Trying to one up mm-hmm. each other in the ring and stuff. So I suppose Eddie was like going back to his teenage years and trying to pull out some of that. Uh, I'm a wrestling background, but yeah, like you say, uh, perhaps uh, Kurt Angle not the best person to pull it out on. But yeah, like, like, like you noted there, Neil, I think um, 
Yeah, it's interesting for every Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar and Shelton Benjamin, there's also like, you know, thousands of other sort of like amateur wrestlers who, you know, haven't quite made that transition into pro wrestling. So an interesting one there. But um, also it's, it's funny in this documentary, because obviously you hear a lot about Eddie Guerrero putting pressures on himself. And he talked about it early in the documentary that he really wanted to live up to the family name since he mm. thought Gory was the best wrestler in Mexico, as he talked. And then we get a... Uh, Andrew mentioned it earlier about him driving past um, the school bus full of kids because um, he starts talking about lowriders now and uh, mm-hmm. how big they are in El Paso. And, I mean, some of the lowriders on display here were uh, pretty crazy and eye-opening, I thought, Andrew. Eddie was the man. He was the man, bro. He, <laughs> he, he, was, the, he was the man back then. He, he, he knew what was in style. And uh, yeah, it, it was just cool to see him kind of uh in, in his natural element as far as like just having like just being around the people that grew up in the same area that he did and you know them still remembering him and him still being around like i'm around to see everybody like he walked in the um the the, the food shop and you know the same it seemed like the people that were working there still kind of I, I guess so, somewhat remember him or, or knew who he was from of course uh being in wwe so it, it was just cool to see him still involved and still around the neighborhood that he or in the area that he grew up in and that they had respect for him you know what i'm saying and to see all the people you know come up to him and ask for autographs and stuff like that and pictures it was it, it was cool to see and i'm glad they captured that footage yeah, because he talks about the lowriders as sort of like, not just a car, but it's more of a, a an art form, Neil, that, uh, you know, what you do into this car and the way you customize it and things like that to him, it was like an art form. That's right. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting little insight into the artistic side of of uh, the guy's mind, because mm-hmm. as you say, Cole, he, he, you know, they're not just a, a you know, a, a car to him. He says it's an expression, it's art, it's fun. And then I think he's driving near a, or he's 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 near a bridge and there's a lot of street art on it and he says you know that's art that's our culture we're the modern day Aztecs I think is the phrase that he uses yeah. you know so he's a guy that uh, clearly has you know depths as well yeah definitely lots of uh, you know lots of depth to him and um, different you know it's interesting obviously well read you know into his sort of history and things like that and then. Um, on the documentary, um, he starts talking about meeting Vicky Guerrero and how they came yeah. up. And um, they talk about how, I mean, a, a really sad story. They talk about mm-hmm. how hard it was to get married just five days after his father passed away. But um, his dad had told him, you know, that no matter what happened, just live your life. And um, he, he gets quite emotionally for the first time talking about feeling guilty, but also saying he wanted to do what his father would have wanted. And, and um and yeah, and I think this is um, the first major clip of Vicky as she comes into the documentary talking about Eddie here, Andrew. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you, Martin, I was like, because I heard uh, Eddie talking about how he first met Vicky and stuff like that. I was going to ask you, how did you first meet the missus, man, if you uh, if you have a recollection of that? Oh, right. Yeah, um, I think we <laughs> met when we were about 15, 16, going out um, nightclubbing and things. And then, uh, you know, a whole sort of time elapsed and then we sort of like <laughs> rekindled sort of like late mm-hmm. 20s, early 30s and then uh, hit it off again and got married. Yeah, so... The- that's what's up, man. Like, best man at the uh, wedding actually said, oh, Martin's known Lisa since she was 16. It took him like 20 years to grind her down. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great, oh, though. Goodness. Childhood sweethearts. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's always cool, man. Like, it's, it, I, I feel like, I feel like, well, I'm, I'm one of those people, like, I think that when, when, when certain stuff is meant to be, it's meant to be, it's meant to happen. So, like, the fact that y'all met when y'all were kids and then, you know, a certain amount of time passed and then you just happen to reconnect. And then now where you are now, I think that, that that stuff is always cool to see or hear about. 
Yeah, we got all the, uh, you know, rubbish out of the system in his 20s and then grew up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I'll say on that. But, um, yeah, Eddie does mention sort of like being successful in Mexico. He sort of, you know, about half a decade, um, you know, five, six years he was working. And, um, you know, he knew that he'd had to gain muscle because obviously in North America, who were the top drawers and they show sort of like images of Hogan and Andre and Savage and Piper and that. Um and I know, like I said before, you can't cover everything in a single documentary, but I feel mm. they glossed over a lot of his time in AAA and obviously his tag team with Love Machine Art Bar. I mean, that hardly even got mentioned. I mean, on the DVD, and we'll talk about it in a bit, there is the classic When Worlds Collide match with him and Art against Silvio Del Santo and yeah. Octagon. But, um, I mean, we're going to talk that much later, but I feel that was a huge part of Eddie's career. I mean, him and Art and their stable, Los Gringos Locos, were like massive heels in Mexico, and Art Bar around the time, and a lot of people mm-hmm. forget this now, was seen by many as a as a great performer who had tons of charisma at the time, was even being talked about as having more potential than Eddie. So, I mean, obviously, he sadly had long battles with addiction and died in 1994. I mean, that's obviously a huge blow to Eddie. I mean, losing such a close friend, a close friend so young. I mean, he even said that he cried for three months after Art passed away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wasn't really that aware of Art Bar. I must admit, uh, this this documentary prompted me to do a bit more research, and I've got a YouTube playlist all keyed up for um, watching at a later time. Because, and as you say, we'll get to it. But the the Worlds Collide match, um, I would buy into that Art Bar there just completely captured my attention, um, even more so than Eddie at that point. Um, when was that, like 94 or something like mm-hmm. that? So I think Eddie had still a bit of developing character-wise perhaps to do, but Art was just amazing, an amazing heel in that match. But I know we'll be talking about that a little later on. But yes, I do agree that, um, as I said earlier on, my first um, exposure to Eddie was really under the WWE banner because unless you were tape trading or um, in the early days of the internet torrenting stuff, um, that's what was on TV. Um, so it was only really later that I got exposed to his earlier work. And um, I couldn't agree with you more that there's there's a really big black hole here where yeah. um, in uh, the, the uh, in his career in Mexico and uh, Japan, I think it's a, just, a, you know, maybe a, a quick mention as being the place he met Benoit. Yeah, and we show him in, in Japan, don't he, as Black Tiger, and he talks about meeting Benoit and Eddie there and obviously gaining chemistry and, and, and the friendship with them. And um, obviously, Eddie has had some classic matches in New Japan and even won the, the 96 Best of Super Juniors. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though we do see some clips from him in New Japan, but they don't go into any detail about his time there. I mean, certainly his matches with Chris Van Moore were checking out um, and his mm-hmm. matches with Liger from around that time period. Yeah, you mentioned uh, like that, that big gap. Both of you mentioned being that big, that, that having that big gap in a documentary uh, about Eddie's career. Like, I was wondering, like, I mean, of course, I don't think we'll ever get the answer, but I was just wondering, like, why WWE decided to like uh, gloss over that portion of his career. Like, of course, they they threw some of the New Japan clips in there and stuff like that, but it doesn't really dive into it a little bit because that I think that's that his time in Mexico and that part of, in New Japan was a big part of his career and helping them, I guess, d- d- discover who he was in the ring on a greater level. And it, it kind of they, they just kind of you know glossed over a little bit. So like maybe it was just like, I mean I don't see any reason why the documentary couldn't have went over forty minutes, but maybe that was just WWE maybe not wanted to dive too much into that, and it was focusing more because like I, I think the the greater portion of the documentary wanted to focus on the struggles and the mm-hmm. 
and the, and the stuff he had while he was in WWE and his uprise in WWE. And they, they touched on certain points outside of the company, but it just kind of feels like that's what they primarily wanted to focus on. And then, I, I mean, I guess you could say rightfully so because it is a WWE based documentary. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. I think it is the main focus of the documentary is about, you know, his addictions and coming and battling those and then coming out on top from that. But yeah, and I suppose they also might think, oh, to mainstream fans, Art Bar was just like a jobber in WCW and, you know, and you yeah. have to explain who he was and his relevance and stuff. And then you might be talking mm-hmm. about it to our documentary. But I do feel maybe these days they might include some more clips of that. And certainly when we got into the independent stuff, they might include some clips from that. But I suppose anyway, they, they jump onto ECW and he talks about the uh, Malenko Guerrero classic, uh, you know, that he calls one of the highlights of his career. And, um, mm. you know, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because obviously ECW fans are known for wanting blood and guts. And then, you know, they got this technical classic. And Eddie uh, Guerrero talks about the emotion in the building. I mean, it all feels now looking back that Eddie was only in ECW for a cup of coffee. But these matches even stand up today was in something you can say about a lot of ECW, I don't think, Andrew. Yeah, man. Eddie was definitely like I, I know we use this phrase a lot in wrestling, like when we describe somebody as being somebody that from 15, 20, 25 years ago as being ahead of their time. And I definitely think Eddie deserves that label, him, Malenko and uh, and a couple of and, and that specific core group of guys. Like, I feel like they really were ahead of their time. Like I was going to ask you, Neil, like, do you think that. Eddie kind of well, I mean, I, 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 I'm not not even saying that Eddie don't get the credit he deserves. He definitely does, but like just mm-hmm. for, for further elaborating on the fact that they were indeed ahead of their time because they seemingly understood every concept of professional wrestling and were able to like put that out there at a time when I guess may, maybe not all people were uh, like aware of those certain concepts, but they were able to take like all of those things, put it in one, and then present something that still stands up to this very day. Oh, absolutely. I think at the time, people did not appreciate it. Um, you know, when I was younger and it was, um, you know, Superstars was on and uh, Wrestling Challenge, that's, you know, kind of my vintage. You know, I've hit the big four zero, So, I mean, I remember all of that quite well. You know, the, the style of wrestling was the double axe handles, and yeah. the constant back rake by Hogan and all that kind of thing. And so this... I think to uh, viewers who were used to the mainstream um, product of the big guys, if you like, was an s- absolute spectacle, you know. Um, and again, we're going to come on to the the, the worlds collide thing and the, the sort of bringing Lucha to, to Los Angeles, which um, was, I guess, a big deal at that time. But uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that this is... Um, Looking back, when you see uh, as a modern viewer of, of you know, the the Lucha Bros or, uh, you know, you name it, um, some of the modern wrestlers who are incredibly athletic and, and, and uh, acrobatic, uh, but w- what they were able to do as sort of putting on these clinics, uh, yeah, just um, impressive and um, certainly was a favourite of mine. Um, when I was 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 younger, I, I, much more so than the kind of slow paced rest hold, rest hold, big guy, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, I think it just goes to uh, speak to Eddie's, Eddie and, and Dean's sort of like uh, 
you know, stand-ins as, like, they can make these, like, you know, blood and guts fans, you know, really sort of, like, sit up and take notice of sort of, like, a, a more technical-based match, and that really goes to show, like, sort of, like, what brilliant workers they were. But um, mm-hmm. now now we go on to WCW, and uh, Eddie says, you know, it's a great opportunity, and, you know, they uh, jump straight into the sort of classic match with Ray from Halloween Havoc, and they show clips of Ray talking about it as being wild and, you know, Ray said that Eddie brought the best out of him, and you know he said there isn't the time when he wouldn't want to wrestle Eddie. And um, mm. and then this is where we get into um, you know the point in his career where you know he says everything's going great, but then he, it quickly went sour. You know he said that he got his fix with wrestling, but before he knew it, it was you know taking a pill here and a pill there mixed with alcohol, and um, it all seems to culminate on uh, uh, on New Year's Day in 1999. Um, you know he said he. You know, he drove to get some eggs because um, he was hungry and um, he was taking GHB, as uh, Neil noted there, um, for sleep. He said he wasn't, wasn't doing it uh, to get high. It was just more for the sleep thing. And he, he'd taken sort of like three shots of it. Um, the GHB seemed to be quite a popular drug among wrestlers at this time. I mean, it's more commonly known, as you noted earlier, Neil, as sort of like the date rape drug these days. Mm-hmm. It's been around in bodybuilding circles uh, since the 80s, I think. Did it have any performance enhancing effect or or like steroids or was it just basically these guys were on the road so much they needed to get, you know, it was just a good way to knock themselves out and get to get sleep when they needed it? I think I think that is it. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I mean, it must have some kind of like, um, you know, in terms of if it was around bodybuilding circles since the 80s, it mm-hmm. must have some sort of um, effects in, in that regard. But yeah, I think yeah. a lot of the wrestlers were using it for sleep and like, you know, it's one of these things where I think it you could get it over the counter and so, you know, wow. and I imagine, yeah. that, you know, because you could get it legally, people were thinking, oh, well, there can't be anything wrong with taking it then. That this portion of the documentary was like very, like it was very eye-opening in a way to hear like that, that specific line that Eddie said was when he felt like he had got his, like he, he had he had gotten as high as he could from professional wrestling. And he needed something different, and that 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 line kind of hit a little bit. I was like, "Damn!" So he, like, you you don't want to say like he 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 lost the passion for because I don't think that's what it was. But just hearing him openly say that, yeah, it, he he got to a point in his career where he felt that he had accomplished a great deal, and he just needed to feel like it, it like it, it was just like very like eerie to hear, man. Like to hear mm-hmm. like how how he thought and how he thought about himself when he had eventually, as we all saw, he had so much more left to accomplish, but he felt that at that period of time, like it was just, he, he needed something else to stimulate him and the wrestling wasn't right. Really wasn't doing it anymore. And then just having that series of, of health scares, like within that short window of time, like, and for him to make it out of that, like, that's like, it, 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 it was just like, it, it, it was like a lot to take in, like, and, and knowing that, you know what he was going through like through that stretch of time and it was like a very short window within like all that happening yeah definitely it's a common story around wrestlers isn't it you know obviously you've got this massive buzz off wrestling in front of like a huge mm-hmm. capacity crowd and then you come back and you're on your own in the hotel away from your family or you're just hanging around with other wrestlers and then you know you know you start coming down the adrenaline sort of like wears off and then you know the aches and pains in your body come back and it's just a common thing and then you have a few beers wash a few pills down that just becomes a routine it becomes seems that a lot of these wrestlers become addicted because of the routine of of, of it all neil i think yeah it seems to be such a common story and and i think what hits home um 
I agree entirely with what Andrew was saying there is that um, at this stage, like 1999, New Year's Day, 1999, the guy is, the guy is what, 21 or 22? He's a, mm-hmm. he's a kid really, you know, and yet he's saying he's done, he felt like at that point, at least mentally, he had, he had got as big a buzz as he could in the ring. So mm-hmm. he took to buy just, you know, retail therapy. I think he says buying things, then drinking, then pills, then experimenting with other things. And it's just, it's amazing to think at that young uh, of an age, um, mm-hmm. that that was going on. Um, but yeah, Martin, it's a, it's a story you hear over and over and over again, trying to replicate the high of, of being in the ring. So, so Eddie, he, he was with, uh, Vicky at this point, right? Mm. And did they already, ha- did they already have children or that was, or that was later on? Did they have children or did they already have children by this, by that period of time when Eddie had these series of health scares? Oh, I'm not sure because obviously, you know, he talks about they'd not talked about the kids at this point. Yeah, they obviously right. talked about um, subsequently, you know, going out for the eggs and taking all this GHB, and then he gets in a car okay. accident, and um, the police have pretty much left him for dead. And you know, obviously, Vicky's getting really emotional talking about this. Um, said he, he broke his hip socket, broke his collarbone, among many other Jeez. injuries, and um, mm-hmm. you know, and then you have his sister coming on and saying that you know she was, you know. She felt that she should, have, you know, be the one to die first because obviously it was touch and go in the hospital. They were saying, "Oh, you know, um, if he makes it out of this, he definitely won't be, uh, he, he won't be wrestling again." And it's just, it's just crazy how um, you sort of like see these stories from these wrestlers who do get like really bad injuries and then always seem to come back from it, Andrew. Yeah, um, we, we, we like uh, like Neil repeated earlier, but just on a different uh, topic, I guess. Like we've seen this so many times, like wrestlers having these devastating injuries outside of the ring and then they come back from something that people have said they won't but yeah man uh like just seeing how his sister reacted and you know she she, she they had her in a, a couple of different spots like during this um this portion of the documentary and you can kind of see her range of emotions a little bit like as far as like how she felt um when when eddie kept um getting into these situations or these un, un like just unfortunate things kept happening to him and like she was just like like at one point she felt you know like you said Martin she felt that um he like she she should have went first if if that was gonna be the case and in the next one the next instance she was talking about how she was like just very disappointed in Eddie for you know for for what he did as far as um you know get, get, get you know just call it what it is got high in you know their parents house or something along those lines and she was very mm-hmm. disappointed in him for that and she, you could just see her range of emotions um like throughout the documentary throughout this this stretch of it but like uh neil i was gonna ask you like to elaborate on like the fact that like back in the 90s it was very very different from wrestlers as far as like saying that like, that communication with your family or that communication with your loved one like now today you know you could just pull up your phone FaceTime and then you can see your people you know it's like literally that simple back then I'm pretty sure it wasn't like it's simple at all in the slightest to you know get in contact with your family like you, you you miss a call you might not hear from that person until the next morning or something along those lines whereas today you can just you know easily get in contact with whoever you're trying to reach yeah absolutely and see them as well see them on FaceTime or Skype or whatever it is mm-hmm. you use um I want to correct myself. I said like 1999, he'd have been 21. That's that's about 10 years off. <laughs> um, slip of the tongue. He would have been in his very early 30s at that stage. But yeah, I mean, um, you get these road stories where, you know, uh, wrestlers are queuing for the payphone to talk to their significant other, you know, back home. Yeah. And um, that's just a world away from what we've got these days. 
um, the ability to just completely um, instantly contact with somebody and see their face. I think that probably made more of a difference culturally than we probably think about um, in what life on the road for these guys was like back then. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, he goes on to say that, you know, he was allowed back to wrestle and, um, you know, he's supposed to be out for one year, but he pushed it. He pushed his body and he's back in the ring in six months. And um, and then he does say that he came back too early and his body was hurting. So he started taking pain pills again and, and he, he knew he'd, he had a problem and sooner or later that he OD'd. And, um, you know, mm. and, and Vicky goes on to say that, you know, she thought, because of him nearly dying again through OD and, you know, that would be the wake-up call he needed, but it wasn't because obviously Andrew mentioned it. Then two months later, after his first OD, he OD'd again in front of his family at Christmas, his sister saying, you know, how dare he do it in front of the children and parents. That's how she felt at the mm-hmm. time. And, um, and then he says, doesn't he, he said he kept making mistake after mistake and he didn't think, you know, anything was wrong with him. You know, he, he'd come back and then, you know, the whole routine would repeat again. Um, so, yeah, just it's just really shocking, isn't it? I think, Neil, that, you know, after the car crash and then, you know, but obviously his body's still hurt and he rushed straight back into wrestling and then, you know, he's, he's, he's overdosing sort of like twice in the space of a few months. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe he said that the doctors told him, well, at first they didn't think he'd wrestle. Um, then it was, you know, 12 months and he was back in, if this happened on New Year's Day, he was back in June. So within six months, mm. obviously far too early. And that uh, makes you wonder about the powers that be as well, you know, letting him, mm-hmm. uh, letting him wrestle um, at that at that time. But um, yeah, obviously a guy with huge issues at this time, like as you said, you know, the going home to see his family and having. A, I think that was his. He didn't he say he OD'd his first OD. I think he mentions or he calls it was in shortly after his return to wrestling mm-hmm. and this was his second one just a couple of months just yeah. a few months later in 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 El Paso when he's there with the family and the younger sister seems furious even about it even mm-hmm. at the time of filming of the documentary um she still seems uh she still seems very angry about it yeah i think also i mean um, the documentary sort of moves on to his WF career but um sort of like sidebar in here and talking about his WCW career because Reading his book, he was fairly critical of how they handled him there. And, you know, he sort of mm. like, he hated the NWO because he was like, oh, it just went on forever and ever. And it got boring and, you know, constantly <laughs> coming out and doing runouts. And then, you know, he really goes to town on Kevin Nash and saying like how selfish he was. Now he never gave anything back to the business and now he kept people like him and Ray down. But an interesting side point to that is in Ray's book, he actually says, you know, he thought Eddie took it too hard in terms of like you know the people like Nash and that, and he said that that's all he was constantly going on about. You know, he, he hated the likes of Kevin Nash and that, and Ray couldn't quite see it the way that Eddie was seeing it. But as far as like, the positives from his WCW run, obviously you know the match against Rey Mysterio. But um, Andrew, have you had much chance to check out some of it, sort of like Eddie's bigger matches in the cruiserweight division than his US title run in in um, WCW? Yeah, I went back and seen a few, but of course that one you mentioned, the one with Ray Mysterio and Halloween Havoc, that one like sticks out above all, mm-hmm. and it, like just because like even um re- like the reason it kind of sticks out like recently is because uh like I know Ray Mysterio gave his gear that he wore that match to um Santos Escobar in NXT for him to wear um last last October actually, so yeah that that that's one that kind of still fresh in my mind. Like I think that's one of the best matches that you can possibly see like I, i've mm-hmm. seen that one that people recommend for for people to show others who 
haven't watched wrestling before or maybe they haven't seen in a long time to show them that that uh that match with Ray and Eddie. Like in it like again, like most of Eddie's matches uh from the nineties or during this period in WCW or the early two thousands when he was in the uh the WWE slash F, like his matches still hold up. Like his mm-hmm. matches still hold up to this day. And I and I think, you know, we can also like kind of take the time out to like kind of credit Ray Mysterio for legit being one of the greatest of all time, make arguably I think the greatest mass wrestler to ever do it. Like Ray is legit, and he's still and to to still be going today, and to like find a way to remain relevant and still find a way to remain and remain in the eyes of people one of the greatest to ever do it. Like Ray definitely deserves his flowers. Like while while we still got him, no doubt. Yeah. Um... And I would have to add to that that it's I know we've touched on this that um, this documentary is really more of a redemption story about the man rather than yeah. a retrospective of his career. But the it's it's another big gap here. WCW if 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 you're if you're interested in a blow by blow account of his of his wrestling career and his partnerships and his you know he had his US title reign and things like that. None of that's in this. Really, um, mm. they do they do really um, uh, skirt the WCW uh, t- um, period, uh, which was significant in his career. But I guess you know, as as we both said, it's, it's that's not really the focus of this documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then they move on to um, you know him, Benoit, Saturn, and Malenko uh, jumping from WCW to uh, WWF and, and the Radicals debut and. Um, it's funny because obviously I don't mention it in the documentary, but if you believe Shane Douglas, he was supposed to be part of this exodus of talent from WCW. Mm-hmm. Obviously, WWE didn't want any part of Shane Douglas at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it, it's interesting because obviously WCW is dead by this point, but still good to see these guys appear on WWE. I mean, it was a, a hell of a debut for uh, for the four of them. I thought Andrew. Yeah, and didn't um, didn't Eddie break his elbow or something like that, like in one of his first matches for uh, for WWF? Yeah, in his um, in his book, he says that um, oh, what's his name? He he, he 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 tried to hit a frog splash, and I know he land, like he literally landed right on his his elbow, and it broke or something along those lines. And I was yeah. like, well, what what what, what a, can you imagine? Like, what a horrible like way to just get like you immediately come here, and then like your first match back, you break an elbow, and like I'm pretty sure that internally in your mind you're probably thinking i wonder what the people who are running this joint probably think about me now like am i injury prone like stuff like that mm-hmm. no it was in his book yeah he said that bruce Richard said to him when he went out he said go and hit a frog splash so hard you dislocate your shoulder yeah shoulder. Yeah, that's what it was yeah, and so he did and then you know obviously he's all banged up and then they still make him come out and work after it and i think they've even brought that up on the uh you know the bruce Fisher podcast with conrad and he, he the bruce Fisher denies it but obviously eddie's talked about mm-hmm. it in his book saying that you know that's exactly what happened but that's crazy you know oh yeah go out there and hit a frog splash so hard you dislocate your elbow which seems a bit <laughs> seems a bit wild yeah, yeah. i was gonna, i was going oh you so, go in here I'm sorry, and and yes, and I think it's debut match, wasn't it, or or at yeah. least one of the very yeah. early ones. <laughs> it was, it was his debut match. But yeah, man, like um, like I, I like specifically with um with Eddie, uh, Malenko, uh, Perry Saturn, and Benoit. Mm-hmm. Like that, I know they kind of in the documentary they kind of transitioned quickly over to the character based stuff that Eddie did with China, and that's when he formed the Latino Heat character. And I felt like Eddie. I don't know if y'all agree, but I felt like Eddie was able to 
transition very easy into that WWF slash E presentation that they were leading into as far as focusing more on the characters opposed to just strictly the in-ring stuff. And I felt like um, Saturn, Malenko, and, and Benoit really struggled to do that. Like, and Eddie kind of just naturally transitioned into forming this character and becoming like very like putting himself in front of the the audience at the time that that audience that were looking for entertainment or was what what wwe slash f was looking for at the time as far as like entertainment goes and i feel like it was just very like you you can even see it like we we talked about it earlier on when he was a kid like you know walking up to certain wrestlers and asking these wild questions or like just being very active and just in this person's face and then that person's face as a kid and just having that type of charisma early on you kind of see that, you know, obviously take shape when he went on to form the Latino he character and he made the his transition to that um, to, to what WWE was looking for at the time as far as like transitioning to the entertainment side. Like his his transition was far more easier uh, than, than the ones that uh, that that came in with him. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And I think even mm-hmm. going back to WCW, he was legal headed, like sort of like Benoit, or maybe even Jericho in terms of like you know his mic work and his his ability to you know be a, a chameleon in terms of his character. I mean, I always remember um, there's a cracking match to open Starcade '98, and it's um, a three-way between Ray Hoovy and uh, Ray Mysterio, and then Eddie comes out, and um, obviously it's the LWO angle, you know, and he starts mm-hmm. beating. Um, Ray and Hoovy for losing to Kimmer and cuts a hell of a promo on that. And I always thought, yeah, even in WCW, sort of like leagues ahead of those guys on, on the mic. And it's, you know, no surprise to see that he sort of like outshone them here. It's obviously, you know, all great wrestlers in the ring, but, you know, you can't hardly say that Benoit, Saturn and Malenko had more personality than Guerrero. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, obviously not a fraction of his charisma. I mean, even even early on in in the uh, something I've forgotten about, but I've remembered uh, when uh, he's talking about dating Vicky at the beginning before they marry. It's a blind date, and he says, you know, he he kind of turns to the camera in in the documentary and says, yeah, yeah, I mean, look at what she was getting, man, you know, and and he's <laughs> so he's dripping with charisma, you know. It's in a way that those other guys, you know, had to work a lot harder to try and get a promo over. Yeah, because they do show clips of Eddie Guerrero in China and, um, you know, they showed a bunch of comedy clips as a Latino heat, which um, apparently got Latino heat. He came across watching uh, The Birdcage, um, sort of like a 90s comedy film with Robin Williams and a character in that saying Guatemala heat, and he took it from there. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, um, this is the first time we see his kids in the documentary, uh, Charles Mm. and and Kim. Yeah, man. Yeah, so interesting to see Charles these days as well. Yeah, I was just about to say that. I'm glad you mentioned yeah. that. Uh, seeing Shawl in there, like, like do 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 y'all kind of feel um like I, I feel like this is something like we can kind of get into. I was gonna go to you, Neil, first, and then Martin. You can uh, Martin after after Neil. Like I was gonna say, like, cause it, I feel like Shawl, like, and, and for those who who haven't heard, like, she she announced that she was stepping away from pro mm-hmm. wrestling recently, and uh, she was kind of you know putting that to the side. Like, I, I I feel like the like she's just a product of. having like a very fortunate slash unfortunate situation of being the daughter of one of the greatest wrestlers to ever do it. And then her mother eventually went on to become a fixture of professional wrestling on screen for her managerial roles. And then now she's in uh, AEW, uh, signed to AEW. Like Mm. I I feel like Shaw just had, like she had it real rough in wrestling dude. Cause like that, like I'm I'm pretty sure like you can you I mean you can look at any of the generational talents that have gone on to find a great deal of success, but like I I think they've all have had to deal with 
you know, those expectations. And I feel like those expectations just got the best of Shaw, even as much as she has tried to like, just say that she just wants to find her own way. And she just wants to be known as an individual, like while also carrying on the Guerrero name. But I feel like those expectations, man, were just like a lot for her. And it, it kind of, you, you know what I'm saying? You, you, you might not even like the, the public might not even be saying anything to her. But like subconsciously within herself, she might just be like, damn, am I ever going to be able to mm-hmm. reach the levels of success that my father have or my mother have? And you know, that, that stuff is a lot, bro. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's just too much to live up to, isn't it? And um, I mean, Martin can probably speak more to her in-ring ability than I can. I mean, I, 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 I don't have a huge amount of knowledge of that. I remember her in NXT mm-hmm. in the very early days of it. Um and um, some stuff from the indies um but i don't know that maybe you know it's when you've got that name expectations are going to be high to begin with mm-hmm. and unless you're awesome i think you're on to a tough road yeah it's really hard isn't it i mean she's essentially the wrestling um, equivalent of a lisa marie presley or a, a sean lennon you know you're, <laughs> you're going to the same industry as your parents you know you're always going to be judged against the sort of great things they did. But That's I think, like I think she did uh, do an interview though, where she did say that um, you know around the time they did sign, uh, you know, because obviously, you know, they were struggling for money once Eddie passed away, and around the time mm-hmm. that um, her mum was on TV, she did sign with FCW, and there was a lot of pressure. Oh on her, yeah, like Eddie and act like mm-hmm. Eddie, and, and you know, and that's that's really hard for her because obviously you're trying to carve your own way, you know, in life, and especially if you're going to the same industry as one of your famous parents, and perhaps you don't want to be exactly like them. But apparently, she said in FCW, she was you know, uh, under pressure to, you know, act like Eddie and things like that. Yeah, it's like, it's like you can, like, Mario, you, you a professional wrestler, like, you can even compare that to Michael Jordan's. Like, can you imagine, bro? Like, yeah. your dad, <laughs> legit, one of the, not even one of the, the greatest basketball player in the eyes of some people. Like, can you imagine, like, those expectations and you trying to get into that same sport? Like, if you don't even remotely live up to the work ethic then you are going to be heavily criticized. And I'm pretty sure it was probably the same thing for Shaw. And I like, it, you want to know what's crazy? Like those expectations, I'm pretty sure can like kind of damper your love for the business. You know what I'm saying? Cause you are just so busy trying to live up to this and live up to that. It's like, like, damn, am I ever going to just be able to be me? And you know, I, I, I hope that she gets a chance to like get a, I guess, fair shake and like mm. j- j- just get a chance to like fully try to do something. Cause I mean, obviously she wouldn't have got in and she didn't want to like really give it a go, but it just hasn't uh, worked out. And Martin, I think one interesting thing that you mentioned just now was you said that they kind of struggled a little bit uh, uh, after Eddie passed away. Um, it was interesting because uh, Bruce Pritchard, uh, no Jim Ross, it was actually Jim Ross had um, covered the, um, the no way out uh, pay-per-view. Um, it was the one, the one, the one, the month after Rey Mysterio won the Royal Rumble, what was that? Two thousand and five or two thousand and six? Uh, two thousand and six, wasn't it? Yeah. Two thousand two thousand and six, and that was several months after Eddie passed away, because Eddie passed away in November oh five. And I know you guys remember the storyline when Randy Orton said that Eddie told Ray that Eddie was in hell, and yeah. um, Jim Ross told uh, like a really really interesting um, like he shared like a really really interesting note about that, and he was just like um. Vicky Guerrero, like the reason that she agreed to let that happen and let Randy say that was because 
she was in a situation where she didn't want to stir up any trouble and yeah. ruin a potential chance mm-hmm. of her getting a job in the industry or ruin any future potential jobs. You know what I'm saying? It's, it, it's kind of like, and 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 J, I just want to mention Jr. He didn't like go in the direction of trying to blame Vince McMahon for that, but at the same time, like as far as like you know. And 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 that like I'm trying to like make sure I word it right so I'm not saying that you know they like press Vicky up against the wall and was like hey you need to agree to this but he like it, it was just kind of crazy to know that she would even think or have the mindset that if she said that she didn't want him to say that about her husband who passed away literally two months ago three months mm-hmm. ago like the fact that she think that she would be ruining a chance to get signed or ruining a chance for future opportunities in the business. And that, 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 that's a lot, man. And the fact that she did that to continue providing for her family and eventually made herself like a fixture in the business, like that you, 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 she, she took that on the chin, man. And I think she deserves her respect, you know, for, for, for doing that. Cause I'm, I'm pretty sure that wasn't one of those decisions where you just be like, okay, like that's, you know, that's fine. But her husband literally passed away like three months before that or two months before that. Yeah, it's everything that's not said, isn't it? You know what I mean? And um, I think that's more the case behind the scenes, you know, rather than pinning someone off against the wall and saying, you all do this or you'll lose your job. Mm-hmm. It's everything that's unsaid, isn't it? But as well as right. Like, back to the documentary. And sort of like, it's time with China because obviously that was hu- over huge with the fans, weren't it? And I think, I feel like Eddie wasn't like the rest of the locker room um, around that time. Neil, because, you know, he didn't mind losing to China or sort of like, you know, showing his ass to put China over and things like that. <laughs> I feel like it's really sort of like unselfish and, and, you know, whereas a lot of the male wrestlers, you know, didn't want to wrestle China because they were like, you know, oh, well, I don't want to lose to a woman and things like that. Yeah, no, he didn't seem to give a damn at, the, at that time. You know, um, it was it was very much a comedic character, all of those back background skits and the rose in his teeth and mamacita mm-hmm. and all of that kind of thing. And I, I, I don't know quite how to feel about it these days, you know, because I don't know if it's a character that would, um, Eddie obviously would be a massive success still uh, in this era. Yeah. But is that character where he's he's really laying the accent on thick and uh, I don't know, it's maybe not for, for an Irishman to talk about, but yeah. uh, uh, no. Actually, if anything, slightly more problematic was Los Guerreros, but we'll come to that, you know. But uh, yeah, to, to your point, um, yeah, he seemed to he seemed to enjoy it, and I think I suppose that's what matters. Yeah, I say that, and that wasn't even uh, I, I, that that wasn't even WWE's uh, like most controversial characters as far as Latino Latino culture goes. When they had the Mexicos, that was mm. that 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 was something like completely off the rails like having three latin men driving around in lawnmowers like that was like kind of I, I, I don't know how they how they got through with that but that was a, a different time and you know I, I definitely don't think that would work today but as far as the uh latino he character goes um like like much like neil uh me, me, I, I can speak from a person of color perspective but i feel like it would be more appropriate for an individual who is a re- representation of the latino culture or latin culture to speak on that so yeah i'm gonna just leave that where it's at yeah yeah definitely um because it, it comes to um a really interesting part here because um dean malenko perry Sutton, and chris bomar sort of like knew eddie still had problems with pills and addiction and um they apparently they went to jim ross for him to get help you know as his friend saying you know we're really worried about eddie and want to get help for him and um and, and they show a clip of Eddie saying, you know, it, it hurt that they did that. And um, he first heard on this video, which um, which I think is pretty interesting there, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in first hearing about this incident, you know, watching the video in the documentary. 
Yeah, man. Uh, again, just another one of, you know, the, the hardships, I guess. And, you know, it was it, it, like just seeing like and, and we, we talked about it like a little bit earlier, like it like all this happened like within a fairly short window. Like it wasn't like a, this big gap of time, like everything happened like within this small thing. And that like that stuff takes a toll on your body. Like it takes a toll on like maybe it, it may not show physically at times but we don't we don't can't even imagine what that's doing to the the like the insides of your body so yeah it was like he he went through a lot man and he you know some of it he did you know to himself but like it was it, it, it that was a lot to put on your body and do to your body over the span of like four or five years you know and something really sort of like where uh, Neil Edimalenko says, I don't want to see my friend Eddie dead in a hotel room one day. I mean, that was really... That was, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's horrible seeing that. Um, that's that's a real... That's a very weird, memorable man. moment in it when you when you hear him say that. You know, the specificity of it, you know, in a hotel room, dead, mm-hmm. you know, and it's... Uh, um, so, I mean, they were good friends for doing what they did. Obviously, he couldn't see it that way at the time. I think he. I think he admits that they tried to talk to him, but it was in a million times. I think he says, but it was in one ear and out the other. So they went to Jim Ross. Um, he also and says, it, "Don't he, that um, you know when he was out of rehab, you know, just have one glass of wine, but then you know that mm-hmm. lead on to another." And he talks about you know being in the paper and and being in jail. And he said that he knew his life could you know. In his life, he could never take a drink once again, which I suppose, um, you know, is um, a common thing among, you know, people who are addicted to sort of like substance and, and alcohol. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the thing, you know, one, you can't just have one. And he, and he sort of says, you know, I want to be, you know, an adult, an everyday adult and just take one drink again. But he knows having one drink mm-hmm. will send him, you know, spiraling down, you know, the loophole. Um, so, you know, he said his, his life turned upside down. And this is when we, we first get the appearance from Vince McMahon because he, he says deep down, you know, there's a wonderful man here. You just have to get there and you can see that in Eddie. But like anyone, it's hidden a lot when, you know, under the influence of, of drugs. And, and then we cut back to Eddie who's crying at this point. He says the hardest thing mm-hmm. to hear, you know, when you love somebody is that they don't love you anymore. You realize one day you're not going to wake up with your children and, you know, everything you work for is down the tube and you have nobody to, but to blame but yourself. And it... it it sort of seems here at this point, this is, you know, him getting released by WWE, you know, yeah. leaving him, and, and this is him hitting complete rock bottom, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I, I and I, I think it was even said uh, during the documentary, Neil Martin, I think that somebody said uh, that something, I, I, I can't remember if it was Vince McMahon, because I know he was in this portion of the documentary, but somebody said, sometimes you really do need to hit rock bottom in life for you to get your shit together. And, you know, that's exactly what happened to, to Eddie. He needed to hit the complete bottom for him to realize like how bad it was and what could happen to him for him to actually say, okay, I need to get it. And we we can apply that to any, anything in life. Like if somebody doesn't want to do something, bro, they're not going to do it. If they don't want to get better, they're not going to do it. You can't, you can help somebody as much as you want. You can put uh, plenty of like uh, opportunities or uh, like resources in front of them, but if they don't want to take it, they don't want to take it. And maybe they that it just any any person in life, maybe they just need to completely lose everything in order to like make them fully see like the damage that has been done and, and the damage that they're uh, possibly doing to themselves. Yeah, as and as you say, he's he's lost everything at this point, and it's it's a hard watch, you know. Even even if you can kind of shut your mind off from what happened 
to him, you know, later on, mm-hmm. just him saying that it's it's difficult to breathe. Um, he didn't want to kill himself, but he didn't want to live. I mean, these are the words of someone at their absolute lowest point. Right. He was in a, in a complete crisis, and um, you know, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. Yeah, and and I was gonna say, uh, Mark Martin, you, you mentioned it. Uh, Eddie got released. Um, it. So I, I've always seen this clip, right? Of Eddie, CM Punk, and Rey Mysterio yeah. in a three-way. I think it was mm. IW. Was that IWA Mid South? Yeah. Was that what that was? Like that was that. So that that was around. Like that was the time when he was uh away from WWE after getting released. Like uh, like before he came back in O two, right? Yeah, because um, it's funny how they they mention him on the Indies, and obviously you know this is an impressive restart on his career, and and you know. He sort of says this is the beginning of the new Eddie, and he realized he had to get his shit together and, you know, turn it around. And he'd have to prove to WWE that he was worth getting, you know, re-signed again. And, you know, they mentioned him on the indies. And um, I feel like a WWE documentary these days would have clips from him in ROH and things like that because mm-hmm. it was a, a good a good time on the indies. Obviously, he headlined the first Ring of Honor show against Super Crazy. And then <laughs> UK fans listening to this will remember him coming over here for the FWA Revival show. And then... He, it was also a part of the WWA. I think um, this is a promotion that was around for a couple of years. They seemed to tour around Europe and Australia with all the sort of like leftover talent from WCW and ECW. I think mm-hmm. they had the likes of Sting and then Bret Hart would come out and do a speech and things. And then they also had, you know, uh, up-and-comers like AJ Styles on that. Do you remember anything about that WWA promotion, Neil? Because they did seem to come to Ireland and England quite a lot. They did. That's right. Um, but uh, I think it was mostly the south of Ireland where they had, at least at that time, better um, sort of arena facilities. Mm-hmm. So I, di- I, I didn't get to see um, I didn't get to see them tour here. Um, but I've seen um, certainly as, as um, Andrew alluded to the clips of uh, this sort of much sought after match with involving CM Punk. You know, it's a very interesting year in his career when you think about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, because he won the IWA Mid-South title in that 308, him and Ray and CM Punk, and then I think he lost it to Punk the night after. So, yeah, it's interesting. Mm. Him and Punk, sort of like, you know, the two wrestlers that you see from sort of like different eras, especially they didn't cross paths in WWE, but it's interesting seeing them crossing paths. He also um, returned to New Japan briefly as well. Um, he teamed with the new Black Tiger there. So, mm. But, but um, yeah, enough of him on the indies. And then, um, obviously, Vince is back on here on the documentary. He says he believes in second chances and that, you know, you know, that uh, Guerrero had a warmth to him and he was something special and, you know, um, it, you know, we we wanted to give uh, Eddie a second chance, you know, and, and make smarter decisions. Um, you know, and, and Eddie comes on in, doesn't he, and says that it's amazing how, you know, when you lose something and you get it back and he talks about seeing Vicky again and this is when they rekindled the, you know, and he said he thanked God that, you know, he had this one moment again with Vicky and, you know, she said she looked into his eyes and he finally had peace in them and she could tell that he'd changed him. But what's interesting also around this, that, you know, because it seemed that, you know, after they renewed their vows, they revealed that, you know, him and Vicky had been um, broken up for a couple of years and um, mm. he'd had a relationship out there and, and that resulted in a child. So um, a third child and Vicky notes that, you know, they accepted her into the family as if she was one of them. Yeah, that that, that was a big moment right there for... um. For like, I don't want to say a big moment for Vicky. I would say like that's more of a like very, uh, like it, it was just very mature of Vicky in that moment. Like I think we can all speak on that as adults, like to and to to incorporate another member of your family, incorporate another uh child into your family that's not yours, and to 
speak of them in that in that manner like i think that was just very big of uh of vicky right there it goes andrew to what you were saying about vicky's character um in uh, you know putting up with if you like the yeah. um, the storyline yeah. you know the eddie's in hell storyline um for her family um it seems like she would do anything for her family and uh, i you know you never really hear a, a bad word about vicky guerrero mm. and here she is, you know, saying, uh, I actually find this quite emotional, <laughs> this part, mm. this, this segment of the, of the documentary, you know, cause she says that his eyes had peace in them. It was the Eddie I knew. Mm. Um, and they reviewed, they re- sorry, not reviewed, renewed their vows <laughs> with the daughters there and everything. So it, it's just a lovely moment, you know, and, um, Vicky comes off as a bit of a saint, you know, and, and, um, I think with good, <laughs> with good reason. Yeah. Yeah, th- th- this was definitely that portion of the documentary where we started to see the uprise of Eddie Guerrero. And that, that I, I don't even think that was just the documentary. I think that was just his life. Like mm-hmm. everything was very up and very down. And then it hit like really, really, it went really, really down. And then he started picking up the pieces. And then everything just kind of went up from there up until, you know, unfortunately he passed away. So it, it, it's like, it, it's a very sad story that, you know, he finally got things together, it seemed like, and then, you know, he was gone. Yeah, because they obviously they show Eddie back in WWE where he'd, uh, this is where it's, he'd lie, Keaton and Steele, and, uh, you know, <laughs> him and Chavo ta- tagging uh, Viva La Raza, and, uh, you know, so Neil <laughs> knows earlier stereotypes galore, but, you know, Eddie seemed to really into doing this character, didn't he? Because, you know, he even says on the documentary, you know, well, at least we were being honest, you know, um, and I felt him and him and Chavo, despite you know the limitations and maybe some of the stereotypes, you know they made it work. I mean, some of the skits are, are fondly remembered by fans, you know, especially the golf cart one and things like that. You know, some classic stuff in the matches with Eddie throwing the weapons at Angle and then falling <laughs> down just as the ref turned around as if Angle had hit him with a weapon. I mean, that you know they're they're remembered fondly by fans, aren't they? Oh, very much so. Yeah, I mean, I remember that myself. And um, you know, where he would he would turn, he's lying playing possum. And turns to the to to the crowd with a kind of a shush motion, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, certainly at the time I was watching it, I thought it was massively entertaining. You know, I didn't really see like I see these days um, because in the extras on this DVD, there's really much, there's really all of the Los Guerreros skits. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think when I was watching this when I was younger. When it was first broadcast, I thought that was all hilarious. Now I kind of look at it with slightly different, <laughs> with mm. slightly different outlook, you know. And but um, yeah, I mean, he was clearly having having a great time of it in the ring. And then um, they move on to showcase the uh, Brock Eddie classic, where you know Eddie, this is him coming full circle, his complete redemption story, and you know winning the uh, WWE title, you know, and him being at the top of the mountain. And he said that. Um, you know, this moment's so special because, you know, his mother was there in the crowd and now he dedicated his title victory to his dad when he looked up celebrating mm-hmm. on the ramp. And, you know, they even show you some behind-the-scenes stuff where uh, Vince is hugging Eddie and, you know, all the other superstars have, have gathered around and Chavo Sr.'s there and, you know, you know they show, show him talking with Vicky on his cell phone after the, after the victory. And just, like, I mean, as far as, like, redemption stories in documentaries and, you know, despite everything we know now, as far as the redemption stories in documentaries, you know, He's come through all this hardship, and then you know he's he's finally proud of who who he is again, Andrew. Yeah, man, th- this was the perfect cap to a a documentary, Martin. And I know I know uh uh Neil uh yourself and, and me were going to get into the the Eddie Brock match, and I was like it like I, I feel like this is the perfect 
transition sort of to kind of even talk about that. Like, I feel like, like, uh, well, of course, like Eddie, like that whole match, I think was really mapped out like really well. But like, just um, I'm pretty sure we're gonna get into that. But like, I think Michael Cole's reaction to Eddie winning the title was like as authentic and as, as any call that he's ever had, opposed to the one uh, when Daniel Bryan won the world title at Mania 30. And like, I feel like dude, those are Cole's two standout moments as far as like title ring reactions. But man, that that crowd was like came literally unglued when uh when when Eddie won the title. Like that that's like one of my favorite shots that they that they had from back then was when immediately when the three count hit, the camera did that hard out, and then you could just see like the whole row of people going crazy. And it was that one dude in the front row who held up the flag and like Eddie went over there and grabbed it, took it over him. And then the security mm-hmm. had to pull him out from the people because they wouldn't <laughs> let him go. Like th- th- that was like one of the coolest moments, man. I can only imagine what he felt in that moment, like knowing that he literally like, I not like I'm pretty sure everything that he'd been through kind of ran through his head at uh like very quickly. And then like, just knowing like, where he is now and then getting to go over there and hug his mother who's seen all this stuff transpire, who like see, raised this dude, like, and this, you, you know what I'm saying? It, it was just like one of those full circle like moments for him, man. And it was just really cool to see. Like, it's still one of those things. I'm pretty sure like you guys, like if you see it on a, a YouTube or you see it on a Twitter, you'll click on it just to watch it one more time. Cause it's like four or five minutes and you just like, you know, reminisce about that moment. Yeah. It's one of those really genuinely memorable moments in wrestling, um, if you if you were old enough to watch it at the time, it was a genuine surprise. You know, this was one of those. Um, it, it's the equivalent these days of like fast lane or or something like that. You know, a, mm-hmm. a between the Rumble and WrestleMania, and Brock was um, the man. Pay per view. Brock was the man. Nobody, mm-hmm. I think, expected um, to happen. Uh, what happened? So uh, yeah, that makes it even better. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's a totally different Brock Lesnar to what you get today. I mean, we might as well get into that oh, wow. before we wrap up the documentary. I mean, just like, I mean, this is one of my favorite sort of like WWE, WF matches of all time. I mean, just everything about the match. So like raw emotion and like you noted there, Neil, it was touch and go whether Eddie was actually going to win this one. You know, it was, you know, you're still like, oh, Brock's the up and coming sort of like, you know, thing that WWE's getting all on behind and just mm. I don't know if he knew that he was leaving at this point because obviously he left sort of like a, a couple of months later didn't he and just I mean the psychology is absolutely fantastic you know yes. like, working over the ribs while you know Guerrero mm-hmm. was trying to work on the left knee I mean quite fast paced say it's a, a match that goes 30 minutes I mean and, and just the transition the end of the match the transition out of the F5 into the DD yes I mean the precision on that, I mean, you know, to land it directly on the belt and everything, just I, I thought these two worked so well together, and it's such a shame we saw I never got a rematch between these two. Yeah, man. Like, uh, I, I, feel, I feel like this match was, like I, I think I said earlier, this match was, like, really mapped out well because for a greater portion of it, Brock sort of dominated it. Mm-hmm. Like, he was the big mm-hmm. guy, the big monster in the match, and that he was a little guy fighting from underneath. And, like, it, they, they kind of found the right moment to have Eddie have his comeback. Like when it seemed like Brock was just like about to just finish this dude and it was over with. And to see like Eddie had to find like those little pockets story. Like as far as the story goes in the match, he had to find like those little pockets to like kind of slip underneath and, you know, try to get his way back in the match. And then of course Mm -hmm. that led to the the referee being knocked down and stuff like that. And then Eddie, like you mentioned Martin, that, that, uh, that DDT that he hit out of the F5 dude, 
Like I, I know for some, I, like I know for some people, like legit spots like that would like turn them off from a match. Like if they would have missed that, like legit. Mm-hmm. Like I know there's some people who like really legitimately like that stuff would they like like took them out of the match just the slightest. But for them to literally get that thing right on the mark, like it legitimately looked like I'm pretty like I don't even know it probably did. Like it looked legitimately like his head hit the hit the belt, and I was like, there, there we go. And then of course went up for the top and. Got the frogs like th- th- this match like that final stretch of this match was perfect bro like this was like legit i i think this is definitely up there as far as like eddie Guerrero's best matches goes and even uh even for brock yeah i think yeah, you know, even a- despite the ref you know the ref bumps and you know goldberg coming out you know none of that mm-hmm. ruins it what a brilliant match it is i i feel uh the the, the goldberg interference is kind of peripheral you know i it i i, I I don't think it's really depicted as pivotal in the win so much yeah. as let's set up let's set up Brock v Goldberg for Mania. Obviously, that was the the, the direction they went in. Um, a terrible match, by the way. <laughs> sure everyone knows, but, uh, but um, yeah. So I, the the uh, the Goldberg interference didn't, didn't ruin it for me, or the ref bumps. Really, I think it's it's um, it's how you get. A clear underdog to the win, you know. So, yeah, I was happy enough with with the shenanigans. I would say, Martin, did you? Uh, what, what did you think about the um, like the backstage footage they had of Eddie, like when he was um, when he was talking to talking to Vince about the win, like, and, and for me that it wasn't even like Vince being there; it was just seeing how giddy Eddie was, like when he was holding the title. Like, dude was literally like jumping up and down with the title, and then of course they had the footage of him um talking to Vicky and you know telling her thank you for you know the, all that you know she put up with and dealt with and you know him really opening up to her in that moment like i i felt like that was like some real special footage that they had right there yeah definitely and at the time of watching this when it first came out you weren't used to seeing sort of like that behind the yeah. scenes footage so it was quite eye-opening especially you know seeing vince come up and hug him and and things like that obviously you see it's quite common in wwe documentaries but at the time you know this was all sort of like new stuff and it was just you know the ultimate happy ending for the documentary and uh, despite that awful creed song they used to end it sort of like <laughs> <laughs> Creed, uh, you know, this was around the time that you know WWE were using Creed all the time, and you know, sure, so that, that <laughs> I was going to need, that band just needs, you know, um, you know, shoving to the annals of time and never hearing again. You know, I was trying to remove it from this documentary, but uh, despite that, it's it's a fairly short documentary, still good, but uh, surprised how much the crew has passed things. But like we said before, I think uh, the main story was his, you know, his struggles with addiction, his battles to come back and stay at the top, but um. I suppose moving on past the documentary, you know, his title run, his matches with JBL and that sort of like absolute gushery ad, you know, where he passed out backstage. It was, um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to go back to the pressure that he was talking about throughout the documentary that he put on himself, because he did actually eventually ask to, have, you know, relinquish the title because of the pressure, you know, being the top guy and, you know, having to, you know, because SmackDown and Raw had separated at this point, weren't they? And, you know, SmackDown was mm-hmm. seen as the weaker brand and perhaps the pay-per-view buy rates weren't as high as, you know, they were hoping for and things like that. And I do feel like he did put a lot of pressure on himself as champion. Did you take it, Neil? Yeah, I'm certain that's true. Um, I feel like he, he, perhaps this is some armchair psychology. Maybe I shouldn't do this. But, you know, given the history of the years building up to the title win, Perhaps that, you know, that for want of a better word, high, you know, was something that, um, who knows, he he maybe thought this can't be replicated and I don't want to go down the road I've been down in the past. So, Mm. 
you know, it, that's complete speculation. But uh, right, right. you 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 would wonder why the top guy doesn't want to be the top guy anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah, I agree. I agree. But um, and then also, you know, he had the feud with Batista, didn't he? And then obviously the famous "I'm your pappy" stuff with Dominic and, <laughs> and Rey Mysterio. Um, I've not quite—I don't remember not liking that at the time. I've not really. Obviously, it's infamous now, isn't it? You know, obviously since his death, you know that T-shirt was everywhere and stuff. And but yeah, I do remember like that story. Obviously, they were trying to rekindle that magic that him and Ray had. Um, you know, back in WCW and the classic matches they had. But, um, yeah, it was interesting seeing, you know, sort of like Dominic Mysterio involved in wrestling at such a young age. And, you know, to see him now, um, you know, he's come back to WWE, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was uh, I was at that SummerSlam show that they that they did that ladder match with him and Ray for the... For, oh, really? I, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, I was there. That was in, it was in D.C. And, uh, yeah, so that, that it, it was just kind of like... I, I like I still have some memories of that show and like where I was sitting. I was sitting right by the like right by the stage, uh, a couple rows up, and like it was like just just seeing Dominic like in like where he is now. Like you mentioned, like it's 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 kind of crazy like to see how much like just how how, how quickly time has just flown by. Like Dominic is like full blown adult. Like I remember I remember even back then when I was a kid, like I was I used to think Dominic was like way younger than me like old time this dude the same age as me like you know so it's, it's it's crazy man but like yeah uh that that was like i feel like you you kind of hit it on the head they try to you know kind of recapture uh maybe not not, not necessarily the in-ring sense but just you know bring people to like the the the, the history of eddie guerrero versus Rey mysterio so obviously, um, you know, his um, untimely and really sad uh, death in 2005, you know, with Chavo find him in the hotel bathroom, you know, obviously horrible um, when that, I'm sure we've got some really bad memories of that. But um, And we talked about, you know, the way WWE handled his death, you know, with the awful sort of like Ray Orton stuff. But um, I suppose, Neil, what do you think the uh, sort of like overriding legacy of Eddie Guerrero is? I mean, he certainly, you know, Sasha Banks, Bailey and the like certainly will always talk about how influential uh, Eddie Guerrero has been on them. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's where I was going to go with that. Is that the his uh, his legacy? I suppose is is um, can be seen today in a in a in a new generation of of uh, of, of very good wrestlers. A lot of them who who were inspired by him when they were kids. Um, Sasha Banks is, is as you've, as you've uh, noted is is one of the most uh, sort of outspoken about that. Um, and because the the boss character is is you know is quite divorced from uh, Mercedes Verdano, so it's it's clearly she's seen I, I, I you know and she's she's spoken about this. I'm not speaking for her, of course, is that when she was um, you know a, a Latina girl, you know, seeing this guy and as as well as being a fabulous wrestler, being you know somebody she can you know, see maybe uh, her family in, you know, and I think that uh, obviously a huge influence on her and I think an awful lot of other wrestlers as well. Um, the likes of Angle, who we've mentioned, didn't, you know, always get on with him, you know, um, said he was one of the best ever and uh, Jericho thinks, I think, believes he was the best ever, at least when he wasn't... Um, under the influence or, or, you know, he was having his bad times. So, yes, I mean, a, a hugely beloved character, uh, somebody the WWE isn't afraid to celebrate, hmm. uh, still uh, one of the best technical wrestlers. Um, and he's easily, I think, in um, 
anybody's top well well who knows but let's say top 10 anyway i think people would most mainstream fans anyway would would certainly put him up there yeah uh i think i think neil kind of put put it perfectly honestly like eddie he, he he obviously influenced a lot of like a whole like crop of talents that are still going to this day and are like in high positions today and you, you like you you don't even know like what talents today are going back and watching Eddie matches. You know what I'm saying? Like people that are still heavily influenced by what he did, and I'm sure his you know his his life and his impact uh, has resonated throughout his family as you know they as they continue to grow. Um, I know Chavo still speaks you know wonders about Eddie and still has stories about Eddie uh, that that haven't been shared. Uh, but yeah, man, Eddie he you know like I think one of the perfect ways to kind of sum it up um and to cap off what neil said is that um like the, the the world knew eddie was here you know what i'm saying like he he was a the the world knew that he was uh, a factor and he made a, a great impact and i think that's one of the things that you know like i, I think that's that that's one of the that's one of the like shining things about eddie's life and his career is that a lot of people know that he was you know, that he was here. So I think that's kind of like the perfect way to cap off what Neil said. I think also as well, you know, in, in you know, the style that he was bringing to, you know, America, you know, the, um, and certainly his influencing WCW and ECW. And certainly his size as well. I certainly feel like the likes of AJ Styles, CM Punk, on top of sort of like Sasha Banks and that, they were looking at this guy and they were like, wow, you know, he's not one of these big sort of like massive mm-hmm. dudes that we're used to seeing. And, you know, definitely influential in terms of them thinking like wow i can do this because he's doing sort of a different style and still getting over with this and through his charisma and his brilliant wrestling so i think certainly very influential on a lot of wrestlers um today but um i suppose we've talked um we, there's uh, a number of matches on this dvd isn't there and um, we've talked certainly about the brock one already but um one we've alluded to quite a bit was the uh when wills collide one from 1994 and it's I mean, it's obviously been talked about quite a bit, but this was a huge event at the time. I mean, it was the first time uh, sort of like AAA and Lucha were making a, you know, a big headway into the US because, I mean, this thing was held at um, the LA Memorial Sports Arena. 13,000 sold out. Um, it was a, it was AAA, um, you know, I mean, some of the wrestlers that were on this thing, they were absolutely stacked. Eddie Guerrero, mm-hmm. Rey Mysterio, Conan, Psychosis, Yuvi Guerrero, you know, Coming on and, and showcasing Lucha Libre to um, to an American audience, it was actually produced by the technical staff of uh, WCW. Um, I think Eric Bischoff helped them out with getting sort of like American pay per view providers, and also quite notable that um, this was the first time Mike Tanay had, had called. Um, had yeah. called oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was going to ask you, I was like when I when I heard the voice, I was like, I know that's not who I think it is. I was like, that's Mike Tanay, and then I, then I, I kind of like. I guess got to put it together. I was going to ask y'all, but like to, to, to fully confirm, I was like, was that Mike Tanay? But yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it was cool to, uh, to hear his voice, man. Yeah. Cause I think he was um, famous for doing a radio show and I think he was based in Vegas as well. Sort of like doing radio and, and obviously he had a great knowledge of Lucha Libre and they first searched him in for this. The other commentator, I'm not quite sure. Chris Cruz um, did a decent job, but I've, I've not heard of him before or since, but obviously, you know, this is the big match coming out of this Octagon and Hell Del Santo, you know, taking on, um, you know, the terror team of Art Bar and Eddie Guerrero. I mean, mm-hmm. a really famous match, obviously recommended a lot around tape traders in the early 90s. And, you know, while not the main event of the show, you know, was rated five stars by Dave Meltzer and sort of like seen as one of the matches of the year. And it's certainly easy to see why. I mean, 
just the little things that sort of like Art Bar and um, Eddie Guerrero were doing. I mean, they were absolutely hated by this crowd. As such, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's been done in Mexico a lot since, but those two did it perfectly. You know, wearing the sort of like stars and stripes on on their uh, on their ring gear and sort of like really, you know, making this uh, Mexican crowd hate them and such a crack. I mean, these four work so well. I thought, yeah, Neil. Absolutely. Uh, it's just a fabulous match, you know, 100 miles an hour lucha um, to a crowd that, I mean, obviously there are a lot of Lat- uh, Latinx people in the crowd because they're they're chanting, um, uh, you know, for the other, for um, uh, Octagon and, and uh, Del Santo. But uh, it's this, um, the heat they get is fabulous mm-hmm. at the beginning, you know, the doing the stars and stripes. I think in storyline, they say Eddie was born in Mexico, but turned his back on, on his home country. You know, we, we know he was born in Texas, but um, Art Bar does this awful. I mean, it's 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 heinous, but it, 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 it worked with the crowd. He does this kind of keeps doing this kind of swimming action as though to say the only way that these uh, the only way that a Mexican can get into the U.S. is by swimming. And I mean, it's it's they, awful. They, awful they, stuff. they said that on commentary too. They did, yeah. Yeah, I they said that on commentary. I, I must admit, I didn't really know what the motion, what what he was doing, you know. But it, the crowd did. <laughs> they were, they hated these guys. Yeah, they they definitely did. They had heat. That's that's definitely what that was. Like it, it was an interesting like uh, way to go about a two out of three falls match because i like this is my first time saying a two out of three falls match like this like i like I, i'm accustomed to you know person gets the pin that's one fall yeah they, they get another pin that's it but this one was like in a tag match you had to pin both individuals to get one fall and i was like that's that that was unique and and, and the, the thing was the match wasn't even that long so they kind of got a lot in within that that certain time frame like it didn't it, i don't i I think it went that long, but like I think that was just an interesting uh, way to go about a two out of three falls match. Yeah, and certainly that's where ten A comes in, doesn't it? You know, it can be quite confusing if you're not used to the sort of like <laughs> having to describe it for us. But yeah, it's it's interesting that sort of like um, my, you know, my history, you know, of Triple A, you know, is cloudy at best. But um, you know, obviously this was a huge event for them, but it, it never sort of like quite panned out in terms of them sort of like making it a big. In, uh, well, I suppose they lost a lot of their talent to WCW and ECW for certain, but mm-hmm. yeah, certainly interesting going back and, and watching this one. But I suppose the more famous match from the DVD is the Rey Mysterio one from Halloween Havoc. And I mean, you go back and watch some of these matches from the late 90s and they've not aged very well, have they? But this one still today, I mean, I could watch this sort of like every day mm-hmm. of the week. I mean, it's definitely, yeah. if you star ratings are your thing, this is the full five. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, just... Everything's flawless in this, you know, no botches, everything executed to perfection. I mean, <laughs> the story's great, you know, with the smaller underdog Rey Mysterio, you know, against the sort of like crafty Eddie Guerrero. And, you know, and then and, and also them sort of like bringing that lucha style to sort of like the mainstream U.S. audience who had seen it in the AAA one, but certainly on a bigger scale here in WCW, Neil. Absolutely, yeah, and it goes back to 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 what Andrew was saying about um, the the charisma of this guy because this is this is in the WCW period, but um, he's out, you know, the his peers, he's outshining the just the, just the walkout, you know, he's got the total disdain, huge <laughs> swagger, uh, the way he looks at the crowd, and you get the Eddie sucks chance. It's just all working for him, you know. It, um, incredible and that's just that's before the bell even goes um and when the bell does go it's 100 miles an hour 
Yeah, man. Uh, I only, I only think it's uh, like nothing else to be said about it. Like it was just that 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 is really one of those matches that you can literally show to anybody as somebody that doesn't even watch wrestling, and I guarantee you they'll enjoy it from from start to finish. So as far as like some of his other matches go, I mean, what are some Andrew? What are some of your other sort of like um, most memorable Eddie Guerrero matches, despite the ones we've talked about? Mm. Uh. I, I think it was the one he had. Oh, see, I, I'm trying to remember who. I, I, I want to say it was either against RVD or Jeff Hardy, and it was on an episode of Raw for the Intercontinental title. Yeah, it was RVD, yeah. RVD, yeah, that, that, that was one of my favorite ones. Um, uh, Another low-key one he had was, uh, what was that? Oh, oh, not not, not low-key, but that was another one I was going to mention. Uh, But the, the one he had with Kurt Angle at that WrestleMania 20, that was another good one. And it was the one he was in, a, Um, it was I think it was a triple threat tag team match at Mania 19. Um, me, me, you, and Nate covered this yeah. on um on the podcast. Uh, it was him. Uh, it was him, Chavo, uh, uh, Sheldon, and Charlie Haas, and Rhino, and I think Edge was supposed to be in the... Yeah, Benoit. Yeah, ben mm-hmm. yeah, I was about to say Edge was supposed to be in the match, but I think he had uh, the neck surgery or something along those lines. But yeah, that, that, that was another one that I really liked. And uh, yeah, Eddie's had a bunch Mm. of like really 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 good to great matches and i'm pretty sure there's like a number of them that we could like decipher and go through sure yeah i think i think the um after he won the championship the angle feud was was good the mania match um we've already touched on the um the 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 feud with jbl and the um the uh the blade job that seemed to go very badly wrong. It was just an incredibly deep cut, but that's it's you know certainly memorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, there's tons of sort of like cruiserweight matches and great stuff. He even had some decent matches with Ric Flair in WCW, and so like I think there's a lot of um, hidden gems there. I mean, you know, it one there, that one with RVD, and then certainly around that SmackDown six time when they were just having banging mm-hmm. sort of like tag matches and things. Certainly a lot to delve into. And I think they did release another DVD that was just a, a best of Eddie Guerrero sort of like match set. But it'd be interesting. I mean, I know they've done the WWE Untold, but it'd be interesting to see him go back and do sort of like an even bigger documentary on Eddie, maybe incorporating the stuff from this one into. Sort of like, um, you know, with sort of like speaking heads from today and people remembering Eddie back then. But something yeah. I did want to ask you guys, though, sort of like Eddie's had, you know, a variety of, of, of theme music. You know, we had the Latino Heat, the Lie, Cheat, Steel, and then the classic sort of WCW theme. Um, was there any um, that stand out as your favorite, Andrew? <laughs> yeah, my, my, my favorite one is the, the one he was using. Uh... Like, I, I can't. I, can't I, like, I don't want to embarrass myself and try to sing it. So I'm gonna just say the. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm I'm just say the time period, the one he was using in 2003 when he was with Los Guerreros. Yeah. Like that. That. That was. That's my favorite. Like, it, it, it's just like a great thing. Like I, I always liked it, but I, I did like the one that he was using when he was a when he was a heel in WWE as well. Yeah, I, I I would go with that one too. The we lie, we cheat, we steal. Yeah, <laughs> as politically incorrect as it is, yeah, at the time, you know, I just thought it was a, a bit just a great made for a great entrance, you know. Yeah, it certainly gets stuck in your head. I think you could say that about all these themes. I've certainly got a soft spot for his uh, his WCW theme. It sort of sounds mm. a bit generic, but I've always got a um, you know. A lot of time for that one, remembering, you know, um, remembering him coming out to it in WCW. So, um, I mean, just um, any final thoughts before we uh, wrap up and head out of here, Neil? Uh, not really. I think, uh, you know, just uh, there's there are some moments in the documentary and even in the, the Brock match that we've talked about that kind of 
hit a nerve. You know, it's it's uh, knowing what happened so shortly after this documentary was made. We've got the um, uh, I'm going over ground we've we, we've covered, but you know, getting the I don't want my friend to be found dead. Mm. Um, and then in the Brock match, you know, he he's shouting "Die Eddie, die!" and then that's being repeated by the the commentators. And you can't not watch that without thinking, "Yeah, oh, well, yeah, he's only months yeah. away from from doing it's, just that." Yeah, it, it it is one of those things. Like you, I think you kind of touched on something that a lot of a lot of people were thinking. Or, or do think about that like it's like even though there was of course at the time no ill intent and nothing behind it like you know it's it's still kind of weird to look back at those comments and be like damn like you, you know what i'm saying because it, it, that, that yeah. thing happened only a year later or you know months later down the line so yeah i, I definitely get what you're saying but like as far as like final thoughts on the doc like uh th- there were like some a couple of extras on there that i i, I did kind of enjoy that he had um one in particular, he did a sit-down interview uh, with Josh Matthews, and uh, at, like he kind of touched on something that Neil um, Neil brought up uh, throughout the podcast. And he was talking about like how the 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 the, the lie, cheating, steal, and the the stereotyping of Latin X and uh, Latinos would just like it, it, it wouldn't have worked well today. And Josh Matthews had actually asked Eddie that question, and he was like, "So, what do you think about like the the, the stereotypes?" Uh, of Latinos and what like I, I really should have wrote exactly what he said down, but the like the the emphasis of what he put on was like I, I remember him saying like you could be black, brown, white, whatever it was, but he was just like as far as him being Latino, he was like that's who I am. I'm proud of who I am. Um, I'm not changing for anybody. Like if you don't like it, turn the other way, and that's. Like I think that's verbatim exactly what he said. Mm-hmm. He used those words. And he was just like he just said like if you don't like it, then turn another way because he was like he wasn't changing for anybody because that is who he was and he's proud of his culture and you know that's what he represents. And it, like yeah, again, if he said if you didn't like it, turn another way. But like uh, going back on the like the charisma front, uh, one of the funnier questions was he was talking about his uh his, his disdain. Uh, like I, I don't know if I got that word right, but he he, he was talking about how he didn't like Ben Affleck because she his, he was dating Jennifer Lopez. It was hilarious. Like he, <laughs> he, he, went, he, he, he went on this whole like two minute rant about like he couldn't stand Ben Affleck. Like it, it was hilarious, bro. But like uh yeah, you, like seeing Eddie and his like off screen like as far as uh the the the, the wrestling the the wrestling goes there off screen part of just seeing him in his his natural element of being himself. It was like re- really cool to see, man. And he 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 just seemed like a cool dude. Uh, and and I kind of wonder, like, what kind of uh advice or what what, what he would be doing today, uh, if he if he was still with us. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think where he would be today. You know, whether he'd be retired or you know might be agenting or you know yeah, right. a completely different promotion. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's certainly a very good documentary and certainly very bittersweet. You know, because we have such a great triumph at the end and then knowing what's to come after. You know, it's very bittersweet watching it, but still, um, you know, a great documentary. And I'd certainly recommend people go out of their way to check it out. Uh, sort of like. This new wave of WWE documentaries at the time where they were sort of like delving into, you know, people's sort of like personal lives and, and talking about their addiction battles and stuff. But, um, yeah, certainly one of a kind wrestler and, you know, um, you know, he'll be remembered, you know, uh, for the through the annals of time. But um, um, as far as plugs go, Neil, um, have you got anything to plug before I pass over to Andrew? 
No, let's go straight to Andrew. I'm just uh, <laughs> just, uh, just an ordinary guy, so uh, nothing to plug. <laughs> nah, man, you, we we got it. Neil, you got to plug your Twitter, man. You got to. Oh, my Twitter? To, oh, well, yeah. okay, then. It's at Neil Flanagan, N-E-A for Apple, L, uh, and then F-L-A-N-A-G-A-N. Uh, I'm a very boring follow, follow because... Um, I, I'll just tell you a very quick story. I, 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 because of my job is as a government one. There's mm. a social media policy that I have to follow. <laughs> right. I cannot bring my um, workplace into disrepute. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and because, and because I um, have been on Twitter since like '07, I've always had just my real name and real photograph uh, as a handle. So I can't even hide behind anonymity there. So. Um, it's usually just me saying nice things about post wrestling. So, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to come up with a gimmick for uh, Neil's Twitter so he can yeah. say what he really wants to say. Yes, <laughs> well, it, 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 this is what we need. We are going to create the official Neil Flanagan burner account. This is what we need. <laughs> but uh, also, also, Mark, we got to mention what we got to thank Neil because Neil was one of the few people that didn't try to come after us in the up next Royal Rumble. Oh, yes. Yes. Thanks for that, Neil. Yes. Yeah, certainly, <laughs> certainly one of the uh, few people from this side of the world who uh, felt like I was ganged up on that. <laughs> there were so many other rivalries going on that night that I thought, I'm not going. I'm just not touching any of that. Okay. And plus, my I will admit that my uh, trivia is is pretty poor. So, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I went out of the contest by... Um, <laughs> the the question was which of the McMahon family was first to have a match at WrestleMania, and the answer, of course, <laughs> the answer, of course, is Shane. And I and I knew it was Shane, and oh. um, but I said Linda, I, and I remember just saying it in this really high pitched voice. I think Linda. Had, I mean, of course, Linda's never had a match full stop. <laughs> I don't know what was going on there. Jesse from the six accused me of throwing the match so I could go to or throwing the whole thing so I could go to bed. <laughs> Maybe there was a bit, a bit of um I, I, I don't know. I was tired and I thought maybe this is a trick question. But yeah, my uh, I didn't get a single question right. So no, was, when, uh, when you are put on the spotlight that you, you do question like any piece of knowledge that you've got. I mean, when right. I, my first question was like, who won King of the Ring twice? And I immediately thought Bret Hart. And then I was like, but no, was there a King of the Ring I'm unaware of from 1989 or something? You know, someone won. And, and, yeah. you know, and I was like, oh, I'll go to the chat room. And I, and I was like, I knew that was the answer. Why didn't I just say it? But when you are put on the spotlight that, you know, they always say when you go on quiz shows on TV, you're at home screaming it from your sofa going, oh, my God, I can be so thick. But then when you're right. there on TV, you know, it's a different matter. And it was the same on that uh, on that up next game. Absolutely. Yeah. And an earlier question I faced, I knew the answer to as well and used up the the uh, asked the chat room and it was who attacked um, Brock Lesnar at a, at a particular point in time. And I knew it was The Undertaker because it led to um, a SummerSlam match that um, Heyman billed as too big for WrestleMania or something ridiculous, you know. <laughs> and I, I had that phrase came into my mind immediately. Oh, yeah, it's The Undertaker. And I think they ripped up the ring in part of that match. Um, but I just had to, I just find myself saying, um, I'm going to ask the Twitch room, you know. So, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, when when you're faced with the question, it's tricky. Yeah. So I know, I know I, 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 um, 
sympathize with the people I shout out for being stupid on, on TV quiz shows, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> when you're put on the spot, it's hard. Yeah, it's funny, it, well, we'll it. be coming, there's always next year, isn't there? We'll be coming for Chris Elliott and his title. He, he, he hasn't got that for uh, very long, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I was about to say seeing uh seeing Steph, uh JP and, and Benno try try to come at Martin. I, I was so disappointed. I was I, I was I was extremely disappointed in them, man. I was like, yeah, I, I I just I was like, so you know what? I was gonna try and get them out, but then mm-hmm. once once I once I fully locked into the mission, which was to get uh yeah. that, that 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 brother Wei Ting out of the rumble, <laughs> I do I, I I swear when I when I said when I looked into that camera and I said, if y'all wanna get me out, do it so I can go to sleep. <laughs> I was I was thrilled. I was like, yes, this is good. I'm out. Uh, it was clear. It was that was clear on the Zoom call because you were ecstatic when you got him. Yeah, it was, it was brilliant. Oh, <laughs> it really was. So uh, I, I, mentioned your, uh, I mentioned your appearance on the, um, on Nate's uh, podcast earlier. What else have you have you been up to uh, in the past month, Andrew? Yeah, so, uh, I just put up two. Uh, interviews up with um one, one with Amy Rose from Ring of Honor who's been signed there since 2017. I know a lot of people were like uh they they they, they didn't know of her and so that was kind of cool to like kind of I guess introduce her to somewhat of an audience I guess or introduce her to new people a couple of new people so that was that was real cool and she kind of introduced me to her fan base as well which was that was really cool to, uh to kind of like get that interaction there um and then I interviewed Shane Taylor who has a uh, we're on a world championship match uh, that's going to air this weekend, and uh, there's a possibility that he'll become the second black ROH world champion in history behind Jay Lethal, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Um, hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm rooting for him. I want to see him get the win, yeah. uh, and he just won the six-man tag titles with uh, Moses and Khan of Shane Taylor Promotion. So, yeah, I got uh, interviews with them up, and yeah, man, you could check me out on Twitter at adthompson underscore underscore my interviews on the Andrew Thompson interviews YouTube channel. And you, of course you check all of my written work over at the, the post wrestling site. Yeah. Which is go and check out those interviews on YouTube. Yeah. And I was going to say also just, uh, uh the, the, uh, the written stuff you do, um, is, is insane, you know, cause I, 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 I look at the, whether it's John or yourself, I don't care. You know, I will, mm-hmm. I will read the roundup, the news update every day on the site. And, uh, Wow, you know, Andrew, you you go the extra mile with those trans, and anybody out there who who um, uses his um, transcriptions without credit, I'm coming for you. There we go. <laughs> get 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 him, deal. Get him, deal. I'm tired of calling them out, man. But now it, it has gotten uh, better. I would say, like I think, you know, I, I sometimes I think you just need to like just publicly say it, and then you know it. People would start doing it, but yeah, yeah, man. But I, I, I try to, you know, go hard with the, the news update. I like doing them; it's fun. Oh yeah, easily one of the most comprehensive uh, news updates. And even uh, got yourself on Bleacher Report the other week. Ain't that something? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I, I sent that to, uh, to Way uh, right after, and I was just like, it's cool that you know my name and Post Wrestling got credit in the next, and then that could lead to new people coming to find posts from Bleacher Report and going to the Twitter and following the Twitter and stuff like that. So I was like, that that kind of just helps everybody involved. And that was just like a real cool thing to see. And yeah, shout out to Bleach Report for, you know, mm. throwing, throwing, throwing the credit in there. Yeah, definitely yeah. going places, mate. And um, as for me, um, obviously me and Ben will be back with the uh, British Wrestling Experience um, sort of like the second Thursday of March. And then uh, me and Andrew will be back 
um, the sort of like uh, second to last Thursday uh, next month. Um, not sure what we're talking yet, but I'm sure we'll uh, we'll come up with something. And uh, I'm not sure what me and Ben are going to talk. Nothing's happened in British wrestling this past. Week. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, thanks to everyone for for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time.